Hit it. Tune into the manifesto hosted by Emily Wheaton, Logan Cook, and Logan Bishop. The Political Science Society's new radio cast. Catch us on local 107.3 FM and wherever you find podcasts. Welcome to the manifesto. My name is Logan. Today, my guest is uh, Taylor Buckrock, NDP MP for, for Skeena Buckley Valley. Hi, Taylor. How you doing? Good morning, Logan. I'm doing well. It must be early. Where are you? Are you in Ottawa or? I'm in British Columbia. I'm in the riding right now. Um, and yeah, it's nine o'clock in the morning. So a little earlier than New so Brunswick. The first thing I want the, uh, the first thing I want to talk about is Bill C-210. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I was a big fan of the bill. I, I, I believe that 16 year olds, they, they work, they pay taxes, they should be able to vote. I've done a lot of research in my four years of university about youth voting and how to get youth more involved in elections. And I do believe that them being introduced to voting while in high school will help them keep up the trend of voting. Why are you a big fan of allowing 16-year-olds to vote? Well, I, I think first and foremost, because young people have a lot to contribute to our democracy. Uh, right now, their voices are largely excluded from our democratic process. And in Parliament, we're talking about big issues that really affect the Canada that they're going to inherit. So I believe that if we bring younger voices into the conversation through the electoral process, which is really one of the most fundamental ways people can participate in the decisions about the future of our country, I, I think that's all upside. Um, and the experience of other countries around the world really proves that out. Uh, so you mentioned that you've been doing some reading about youth voting. Um, you know, there's over a dozen countries around the world that have lowered their voting age to 16. And when they've done so, they've seen a number of, of different things happen. Uh, for one thing, they see greater engagement and participation by 16 and 17 year olds than they see in the kind of 18 to 24 year old age cohort. Mm -hmm. And I think that's largely because um, age 18 is not a great time to expect young people to start voting. It's a, a time, you know, after graduation from high school, it's a time of great transition when young people are moving away from their home riding. Um, they're not as connected to the place where they're living. And there are all sorts of other things competing for their attention. I have an 18-year-old daughter who's off to university in September. And, you know, it's, it's a time when there are a lot of things on young people's plates. Uh, so the idea of figuring out how to vote and making your way to the voting place and casting a ballot for in a riding uh, that you don't call home, that's not top of mind for young people. By contrast, if we lower the voting age to 16, and this is what they've seen around the world in, in places like Austria and Scotland and Wales, if you lower the voting age to 16, you're uh, involving young people at a time in their lives that's relatively stable, when they're living at home, when they're uh, still going to high school, they're, they're probably living with their parents in the community where they grew up. 
And all of those conditions lead to greater civic engagement. They lead to greater voter participation among that, that young cohort. So um, certainly there's lots of academic research on this and it, it shows that 16 and 17 year olds get out there and vote. Um, this is something we should be concerned about because it's actually the young cohort, 18 to 24 year olds currently, that vote in the lowest numbers of, of any age demographic. We know that seniors get out and vote in huge numbers, um, but it's young people that uh, seem to not be really partaking in that democratic opportunity. So, uh, so lowering the voting age, maybe a bit counterintuitively, is actually a way to start that voting habit earlier in life and what the data shows is that that voting habit, if, if we can get young people out to the polls when they're uh, 16 and 17, those voting habits stick with them through their lives. So those are a, a few of the, the benefits. Um, but really, it's about the fact that uh, the arguments against lowering the voting age aren't very strong. I, I've talked to lots of MPs and the ones who don't support it, they just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, I think it's fine the way that it is. Well, for 16 and 17 year olds who want their voices to be heard, that excuse just isn't good enough. And if you look at the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, it grants every Canadian citizen the right to vote. Uh, so there is an argument being made, and currently there's a, a group of young people taking the federal government to court. There's an argument to be made that the current voting age limit actually infringes on the charter rights of young Canadians. Uh, so it's a it's a really interesting thing. I brought forward my private members bill because I wanted to advance the conversation and bring forward the voices of young people who are fighting for change. Uh, unfortunately, it, it didn't succeed in, in the vote in the House of Commons. Uh, but I do think this is a change that eventually is going to come to pass uh, because it's been so successful in other places where it's been done. Yeah, I'm I'm only 21 and in previous elections, I have had to convince my friends that they should go vote, even if they don't want to, that voting is an important part of our democracy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Another election question. People have been theorizing that the prime minister is going to call an early election. Do you believe that an early election will be called before 2025? I, you know, Logan, I, I try not to engage in too much speculation or hypotheticals um, when it comes to elections. My, my focus is really on trying to represent the people of Skeena Bulkley Valley in the best way possible and to make sure that their voices are heard in Ottawa. Um, now, right now we're in a minority parliament, which is mm -hmm. a pretty interesting situation. Uh, when you're in a majority parliament, of course, uh, the government holds all the cards and they can pass any legislation that they want. And typically those those governments last the full four years um, in a minority situation. It's a bit more complex because, of course, the government has to uh, find enough votes to pass its agenda. And, uh, you know, I think it's a it's a big opportunity for uh, parties like ours that hold the balance of power to get some big wins for Canadians. And that's really been our focus in this parliament. Uh, you, you probably heard about our success in in forcing the government to commit to some big policies that we've been calling for for many many years uh, things like dental care a, a dental care program that is going to allow people who don't have dental insurance to go to the dentist 
that is already underway. So um, this past year, this past December, uh, Canadians who earn a household in income of less than $90,000 are able to get uh, funds from the government to pay for their kids' dental care, so kids under 12. That's the first step. Now, what we're working on this year is even more exciting because it involves a full program to cover all the basic dental needs of youth under 18, all seniors, and, and people living with disabilities who earn less than $90,000 per year. So this is going to get help to, to millions of Canadians who can't currently visit the dentist. And the reason this is so important is because we know that dental health is connected to our overall health. We know that when people aren't able to visit a dentist and take care of their teeth, they can develop uh, serious health issues that, and end up back in our healthcare system. Uh, so this is, it's something I'm really excited about. It's, um, it's something that hopefully by the end of the year, we're gonna have some big news for people who don't currently have insurance. We're also working on, on pharmacare. That's a, a big part of our push because there are millions of Canadians who can't afford the prescription medication that they're prescribed by their doctor. And these are ways that we can strengthen our universal healthcare system um, and really complete the vision that was set out back in the 1960s when the Canada Health Act was first passed. Uh, really, the NDP's vision has always been that universal health care should be from head to toe. It should cover all of the different aspects of human health and that no one should have to pay with their credit card when they go to see a doctor or go to see a dentist. Um, so we're, we're putting those building blocks in place in this minority parliament. I think if it was a liberal majority parliament, we wouldn't be seeing this progress because we know that the liberals um, haven't supported things like dental care and pharmacare in the past. So, um, so those are a couple of things that I, I'm really excited about working constructively on. Uh, there's going to be an election eventually, and, and when there is, we're going to uh, go to the people with our with our track record and with our ideas. And um, but until then, we're gonna we're gonna keep uh, buckling down and working on these priorities that are going to affect the lives of, of so many Canadians. My next question was going to be about primary care and dental care, but. You did cover the basics there. Uh, I want to talk about rail service. It takes 21 hours to get from Halifax to Montreal. You can yeah. drive that 12 and a half, fly it an hour and a half. What needs to be done to fix rail service across the whole country? Oh, it's such a good question. And, you know, it's, it's just tragic that Canada is so far behind the rest of the world when it comes to passenger rail service. Um, everyone that I talk to, you know, talks about this vision of having an effective network of passenger rail across the country. And yet um, we're in a situation right now where for much of the country, particularly rural Canada, there just isn't dependable passenger rail service. Even in those areas where there is some semblance of rail service, um, the situation with the big rail companies means that the passenger trains can't run on time. Uh, so just to break it down a little bit, right now, most of the rail corridors in Canada are owned by CN and CP. And because there's more money to be made moving freight, those two companies have really prioritized the movement of, of freight trains. Um, as a result, the passenger trains run by Via Rail or other, other passenger carriers, there are a couple others across the country, those trains have to pull over and let the freight trains buy, and that affects 
their schedule. It affects the dependability and consistency of those routes. And it makes it hard for people to use the train as a transportation option. Uh, here where I live in Northwest British Columbia, you know, there's a, there's a rail uh, route called the Skeena that runs from Jasper to Prince Rupert. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful route. And certainly every year, tourists from around the world ride the train to, to look at the scenery. But it's not really a good transportation option for people who live in the region because often the train is two hours, four hours late. Um, that's not something that people can depend on. So across Canada, we need to see a shift in that regard. And, you know, I'm not sure what it's going to take, but I do think it's going to take some vision on the part of the federal government to stand up to the big rail companies and say, no, we're going to take back our passenger rail service. We're going to invest in via rail, our public um, passenger rail provider. One of the things VIA has been struggling with is that it has really aging rolling stock. So um, many of the trains are decades and decades old. They're, they're much older than the passenger trains used in other parts of the world. Just recently, some of the cars uh, were taken in for inspection and it, these inspections showed that they weren't um, structurally sound anymore, these, these passenger train cars. And so VIA has been having to run extra cars on their trains to act as a buffer in the case of a collision. So there needs to be reinvestment in the trains themselves, in addition to what I spoke about when it comes to uh, carving out space for passenger rail on our main rail corridors. Now, I'll, I'll just mention one other thing when it comes to passenger rail. The government uh, is working on a plan for something called high-frequency rail uh, on the, uh -huh. the, the corridor between Toronto and Quebec City. Now, this is Canada's busiest passenger rail corridor, and right now it accounts for something like 80 or 90 percent of Via Rail's revenue is just in that one corridor because it's such a densely populated part of Canada. Yeah. Um, and what the government wants to do is they want to build new track dedicated to passenger rail and have these high frequency trains that essentially are going to cut down the travel time and allow people to get between these major centers along the line. Now, this is a concept that we support, but we're very concerned about how the Liberals are going about it. So instead of investing in Via Rail and building uh, a, a really viable um, public passenger rail service, like so many other places around the world have, what they're doing is, is they're doubling down on this public-private partnership model, which is essentially a form of privatization. Right now, they've gone out to these big private corporations and said, hey, do you want to build this rail line for us and operate these trains for us? Come to us with your proposal. So these are companies like SNC-Lavalin, like um, these other big uh, mega corporations that are looking at this project as a way to make a whole bunch of profit. And we really feel that the, the best way to build um, a passenger rail system like this is to do it publicly, to do it in the interest of Canadians, not in the interest of private investors. Uh, and we've seen in other cases, certainly in England, when they privatized their passenger rail service, uh, they saw the cost of riding the train soar. They have some of the most expensive passenger rail in the world. Um, here in Canada, we saw some of the pitfalls of the public-private partnership approach 
uh, with the Ottawa LRT, which has been plagued with so many problems since day one. Um, what happens is when when they go down this path and they try to attract private investment, try to attract these companies that want to maximize private profits, uh, they end up cutting corners and they end up jacking up uh, the fees charged to riders. And we believe that the best model is a public model, one that puts the needs of rail passengers first and ensures that the service is affordable, is convenient, and really works for people who need to use the train. So we're we're pushing back hard on, on this privatization scheme. One of the challenges is that if this private company, someone like SNC-Lavalin comes in and takes over the busiest rail corridor in Canada, um, that's going to leave Via Rail with just a, a mere shadow of its former service. They're going to have the least profitable routes across rural Canada. Um, and I, I think that it's really going to spell the demise of VIA as a, as a public uh, rail provider. Um, that's a future that, that deeply concerns me because I think we should be heading the other direction. This is certainly the NDP's view that we should be investing in public rail. We should be building a future for VIA rail across the country. Um, and instead, the, the federal government seems to be um, handing over most of the passenger rail uh, revenue to, to private companies. So that's a, a little glimpse into the, the passenger rail stuff. I, I hear you when you say, you know, so many people want, have this vision of effective rail service. You look at countries like Japan that have had high speed trains since what, since the 1970s? Uh, here in Canada, we're really, we're in the dark ages when it comes to, to rail service and it could be much better. To, uh, to continue on the passenger rail questions, in most non-North American countries, between cities like Toronto and Montreal, they would have frequent high-speed rail between them. Yeah. Here in Canada and really North America, we seem to be obsessed with our cars and our private transportation. What do you think about high-speed rail between the big cities? Oh, yeah, like it would be incredible. It would be a game changer to have high speed rail between Canada's big cities. Um, you know, I think the government is has been uh, very cautious around the idea of high speed rail. And, you know, this high frequency rail plan that they they've put forward, it only sees the trains going at most about 160 kilometers an hour. Now, in other parts of the world, trains are going over 300 kilometers an hour. So uh, the question is, why why is Canada having to accept such a, a, a diminished vision compared to the rest of the world? Uh, you know, and, and I would hope that the government would put out a really bold plan that would, um, you know, provide service that's at least on par with what we see in other countries. Um, whether that happens, I, you know, I, I, it's certainly something we're going to keep pushing for. I do know that there are some other considerations around high-speed rail. It, it typically costs quite a bit more. Um, there's more risk involved when it comes to the financing of those big projects. Uh, but other countries have shown that it's possible. And you know, if we're going to get people out of their cars, if we're going to stop people from choosing to uh, use airplanes for these short-haul flights um, and, and really reduce carbon emissions, address the climate crisis, High-speed passenger rail is one of the best ways to do that. Yeah, like I'm thinking Europe, you can go between London and Brussels in a few hours. Like, imagine going between, say, Toronto and 
New York, Toronto, and Chicago. It'd be it'd be great. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, um, I, I think it's a it's a really important vision. Let's talk, let's talk about rail safety. On the other hand, like La, uh, like Manetti happened ten years ago. There was a rail derailment in Ohio that's been on the news for months. Here in St. John, the the tracks go right through the middle of the city. Mm-hmm. What needs to be done to make rail safe? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I've been troubled seeing the the footage from the uh, East Palestine, Ohio uh, derailment, and thinking about the situation here in Canada. I was just reading yesterday. There was an article that quoted. Kathleen Fox, the uh, the chair of the Transportation Safety Board, and uh, after a, a big derailment in British Columbia uh, a few years ago that killed three rail workers, uh, the Transportation Safety Board came out with a, a report with a bunch of recommendations, including recommendations around braking systems. And you know what the chair of the Transportation Safety Board was saying just the other day was that the progress in implementing those changes has been far too slow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we see what happened in in Ohio and we think about our communities here in Canada and we think about the, the tragic legacy of Lac Megantique, um, it's something that is, is deeply uh, disconcerting. Now, we've done a bunch of work on this in parliament at the transportation committee looking into rail safety in Canada and and what the opportunity is, what the imperative is for, for stronger regulations. The federal government employs an approach called safety management systems. And this is essentially an approach that sees the big rail corporations write their own safety rules. And then the federal government is supposed to audit those safety management systems and ensure that they're up to snuff. Um, It's really a a form of self-regulation, and uh, there are a lot of experts who feel that uh, what we actually need is something much simpler, which is strong government rules with proper inspections and enforcement. Uh, And that's how we're going to prevent the kind of disasters like we saw in in Field BC, like we saw um, in Lac Megantic, and and like we've seen recently in Ohio. whether the government has the has the guts to move in that direction remains to be seen. But the committee did put out a uh, a report with um, I think it was over thirty recommendations that that point to things that can be done to improve rail safety in Canada. Here in Northwest BC, what we've seen along the rail corridor is a, a dramatic increase in the transportation of dangerous goods, and so you see these uh, these trains with. Uh, dozens of cars of pressurized liquid propane uh, parked in rail yards right in the middle of our communities. And, you know, you think about the potential consequence of a major industrial fire involving one of those trains. It's it's truly horrific. In many of the smaller communities, um, residents are protected by volunteer fire departments that have relatively limited training and equipment. And that's the first line of defense in the case of a rail fire. Uh, So one of the things we've been pushing for is for the government to force the companies to properly fund and resource emergency response. Right now, there's no maximum response time. And 
you know, the time that it takes for specialized crews and equipment to arrive on the scene could be three or four hours. Um, there's a lot that can happen in three or four hours. And in the meantime, we have these, these volunteer firefighters responding to these major rail fires. And, you know, while there is some training that's available, it's, it's voluntary. There's no federal standards for preparedness, for, for community preparedness. And that's something uh, I find very, very worrying. worrying. Um, there's so much that can be done to make our railroads safer, but in the end, it boils down to the federal government standing up to these multi-billion dollar rail corporations and saying that the safety of our communities and the oh. safety of our environment is so important that we're going to put proper rules in place and we're going to fund, um, you know, the necessary uh, inspections and, and capacity at Transport Canada. Uh, the last thing I'll mention about rail safety is is um, one of the, the really archaic aspects of our rail system in Canada is the fact that the rail corporations have their own private corporate police forces. There's no other transportation sector that has its own police. And, you know, this is of great concern because when there are accidents or, or incidents that injure or kill rail workers, um, or, or even have impacts on the broader community, uh, the folks investigating work for the rail company that could be uh, the ones that were negligent and, and, and contributed to, to the incident. So, you know, we saw some very, very troubling um, circumstances in the aftermath of the derailment in field that killed three men. Um, and we saw CP's rail police on the scene um, and we also saw some some disturbing um, allegations around uh, the, the private corporate police colluding with the Transportation Safety Board to um, to essentially uh, prevent um, further investigation into into what happened by the RCMP. Now, now there's an RCMP investigation ongoing and and hopefully that investigation will get to the bottom of it. But one thing I've been working on with the families of the CP disaster near field is um, amending the legislation federally to remove these corporate rail police altogether. And, you know, instead put in, in place a policing system for our rail sector that is accountable to the people, not to the corporations that employ them. And this is this is the situation in the UK where they have um, a, a separate police service for rail that's funded by the big rail corporations, but it's accountable to a civilian oversight body. And so you have that transparency and accountability that's so important when we're talking about uh, the pursuit of justice, when we're talking about fair and objective investigations into rail disasters. Um, so anyway, we'll, we'll have more on that. Right now, the, the government has put forward a bill. It's supposed to come uh, come forward for debate here in the next couple of weeks, uh, Bill C-33, that is their attempt to improve the rail safety environment, but it's it's pretty thin soup. There's not much in there. And, and certainly, you know, after a parliamentary committee report with over 30 recommendations, um, the Minister of Transport didn't see fit to address a single one of the things that the committee raised. Uh, so that's a, that's a real shortcoming and, and something I'll be highlighting in the House of Commons. We've talked about trains. Let's talk about planes while we're at it. The airline industry is, what's what I'm looking for? 
negligent really they cancel flights they delay flights and they don't they don't let, they don't compensate their their customers they lose luggage what needs to be done to get the airline companies in line well it's a good segue uh logan because you know in many ways it's it's the same underlying problem which is a, a lack of willingness on the part of the government to stand up to these big corporations that mm -hmm. uh in the in the transport sector so in early 2019, the Liberals brought in uh, this system of air passenger protections. It was supposed to, it was kind of colloquially called the Air Passenger Bill of Rights. Um, the, the proper technical term is the uh, Air Passenger Protection Regulations or APPR. And when they first brought them in, they said, these are gonna be the, the best in the world, the best protections for air passengers in the world. And what we've seen since that time is quite the opposite. Uh, we saw last summer, we saw hundreds and hundreds of flights canceled and delayed. We saw people sleeping on airport floors. Um, we saw, you know, Canadians who had scrimped and saved for this, you know, these holidays, trips of a lifetime. Uh, we saw their plans upended and, and in many cases uh, canceled altogether. Um, this past Christmas holiday, we saw something very similar uh, with major disruptions at, at our major airports. Uh, and so we've been looking into this as well. And, and you know, it, it seems that really the current system isn't working. Um, the airlines aren't in the APPR. Uh, there are certain levels of compensation that passengers are supposed to receive for different types of disruptions. They range between $400 and, and $1,000. And, you know, what we've seen, and maybe you've experienced this yourself, is when, you're, when your plane is canceled and you, you email the airline and say, hey, I would like my compensation under, under these rules, um, most of the time they get back to you and say that no compensation is owed because it's not a, situa it's not a situation within our control. And this is where it gets a little bit complex, but uh, Canada's rules are are quite different from those in the in the UK, or sorry, in the EU. Uh, in the EU, they have a much simpler classification system for disruptions. And in Canada, we've created this loophole, which is that um, when a disruption is within an airline's control but required for safety, there's no compensation owed. And so what we see airlines doing is we see them claiming that everything is related to safety. Um, in many instances, they're, they're even claiming that a lack of crew is uh, a safety issue. And so if a flight's canceled because there aren't enough crew to crew the flight, then they're, they're saying that customers, uh, passengers um, don't deserve compensation. Now, this is somewhat contested and the minister has said, no, no, in those cases, absolutely. And, and actually the Canadian Transportation Agency as well, have said, uh, you know, ensuring adequate crew is within the airline's control and, and those passengers should get compensation. Yeah. But the reality is, is that there are these loopholes that mean that a lot of passengers aren't getting compensated. And so they have to, the Canadian system is so bureaucratic and complex that passengers who want to get uh, compensation have to jump through all of these hoops. They have to, first of all, complain to the airline, wait 30 days to get a response, then file a complaint with the Canadian Transportation Agency, and then wait in line until the Canadian Transportation Agency looks at their complaint. 
Right now, the backlog of complaints at the Canadian Transportation Agency is 36,000 complaints long. Whoa. So passengers are having to wait over a year and a half just to get word back about whether they're going to get compensation. So the system that, that Canada has designed is it's overly administratively complex. Mm -hmm. It really um, serves the airline's interest, not the interest of passengers, because only a small percentage of people are actually going to have the, the fortitude to jump through all of these hoops and persist through this bureaucratic process to the end. Now, um, in the EU, their system seems to be much more streamlined and compensation is the norm, not the exception. So we're, we're pushing the government. And the minister recently announced that he is going to be tabling reforms to Canada's approach. This is like the second time he's gone in and, and tried to tweak it. We've been pushing for something really high bar that, that puts the passengers first. And uh, working alongside advocates like the organization Air Passenger Rights, uh, Gabor Lukacs, and others, um, we're going to be articulating what exactly those changes need to be. Uh, because... Um, you know, Canadian passengers deserve better. They shouldn't be sleeping on airport floors. They shouldn't be uh, essentially picking up the slack when airlines drop the ball. And, you know, I think what we saw coming out of the pandemic is the airlines were trying to fly far more passengers and far more flights than they had the capacity to. Yeah. Um, they're trying to catch up financially in a way that put a lot of passengers out. And that's not fair. That's not something we want to see. So instead, we need we need some really strong rules that are properly enforced. Part of the rules involves fines. The, the Canadian Transportation Agency can levy fines against the airlines for failure to compensate passengers um, or failure to abide by the APPR. Uh, we questioned the Canadian Transportation Agency at committee. And what they told us is that they've never um, levied a fine against an airline for failure to provide compensation. And the fines that they have levied, they, they, they find WestJet uh, an amount of money, a, a small amount of money for, I, I think it was failure to um, properly inform passengers or properly communicate with passengers about their air passenger rights. Mm -hmm. But the fine ended up being like $200 per passenger. Um, and so when you're dealing with these huge corporations, that, that kind of fine isn't enough to serve as a disincentive. And, you know, unfortunately, if the cost of compliance is greater than the cost of non-compliance, we're going to see uh, companies not complying with the regulations because there just aren't the consequences there. Um, so uh, this is something we continue to work on. Uh, I'm hoping in this spring session to be bringing forward um, an articulation of what these changes need to be. And we're going to keep putting pressure on the minister until Canada gets the regulations that its passengers deserve. $200 a person is horribly low. Let's say it's 100 people. That's $20,000. That's that's pocket change for a company like WestJet. Yeah, exactly. Think about it. Exactly. Throw it away. Exactly. Yeah. And if you look at the United States, they've been much more aggressive when it comes to fines. I, the number I saw was that the federal government had fined the big airlines over $7 million during the pandemic for failure to uh, refund passengers. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's a different approach. And uh, in Canada, it seems like um, both the Canadian Transportation Agency and the Minister of Transportation are, are sort of captured by the big airlines that they're, they're doing the bidding for these big corporations. And, and the folks left 
picking up the slack are the passengers themselves. Um, that's not right. We need a better system. We do. Um, I want to talk about like just standard old infrastructure, roads, bridges, and the such. The bridges across this country, they're generally built in the 60s and the 70s. They're starting to show their age. What can the federal government do to ensure that roads and bridges are upkept for future use? Yeah, well, roads and bridges largely fall under provincial jurisdiction. Um, I know there are instances where the federal government has has partnered on on larger um, infrastructure projects involving bridges. Uh, there's one here in, in Northwest BC that was recently funded. Uh, and and that's that's important because a lot of Canada's infrastructure is aging. Mm -hmm. We need to see uh, more infrastructure investment. And most of all, we need to see, uh, you know, the federal government uh, assisting communities at the community level to deal with their infrastructure deficits. Uh, we know that investing in infrastructure has a lot of positive economic spinoff effects, but we need to do it in a smart way because, um, you know, there are limited resources available and, and there's a huge amount of need. Uh, one of the areas when it comes to infrastructure that uh, I don't think we have a handle on yet is the impacts of climate change. You know, here in British Columbia, uh, this past year, we saw the atmospheric rivers and the flooding in the lower mainland yeah. uh, take out a huge amount of the transportation infrastructure, uh, bridges, highways, uh, rail lines, um, and the cost of repairing that damage was billions of dollars. And it's, it's still a project that's underway. Uh, so looking forward, because we know that extreme weather events are going to become more frequent, that they're going to become greater in magnitude, uh, we need to be thinking about how we build infrastructure, how we uh, ensure that our communities are resilient in the face of, of what's coming. And uh, it means doing things differently. Uh, it, we can't simply uh, keep repairing infrastructure mm -hmm. and, and putting it back to the way that it was, because frankly, the way that it was wasn't up to snuff. It's it's not able to withstand uh, the types of events that we know are coming down the pike. Um, and and so that's I, I think that's going to be a huge challenge. Uh, we also need to be building infrastructure that um, really dr drives down carbon emissions and, and leads to that kind of clean energy economy that we're talking so much about. So, you know, the federal government investing in things like widening highways uh, at, during a climate crisis at a time when we need to be uh, focusing on lower carbon forms of transportation. I, I think a lot of that stuff needs to be rethought. Uh, my one comment to that is, that I know the minister, federal <laughs> transportation minister was here in St. John yesterday <laughs> announced funding for the Harbor Bridge, which they work on every single year because it was not built well back in the 60s it's just a money pit it's my eyes um yeah that kind of thing is so frustrating if i'm not mistaken you're the deputy critic for fisheries oceans and the coast guard aren't you that's right yeah okay i thought so so i'm from a very small fishing community along the bay of funday here in new brunswick i've nice. seen i've seen overfishing decimate the, the fish the, the fishing stocks haddock pollock the heron lobster what can be done to stop overfishing and 
help these help the fish population come back to its historical norms? Oh, that's a good question. And I, I must admit, Logan, I'm not as familiar with the East Coast fishing situation. Um, you know, my, my focus in that role as deputy fisheries critic is, is more on the West Coast, uh, where we have, um, in some ways, a similar series of challenges, uh, especially um, looking at the way that commercial fishing licenses are, are granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that I, I think the West Coast could stand to learn from the East Coast, because um, following the, the, the collapse of, of some of the, the big East Coast fisheries, the federal government did reform the the licensing system and and brought in rules that ensure that the people actually doing the fishing derive uh, the benefits from that and that the licenses don't uh, get stacked up by these big uh, corporations that um, that aren't actually fishing themselves. So that's something we're trying to bring in here on the on the West Coast sort of owner operator regulations and fleet separation rules that um, ensure that the the people who actually work on the boats uh, are able to make a decent living. And I, I think that's part of the picture because um, in an era when a lot of fish stocks are, are under pressure and we're seeing smaller catches, we need to ensure that as much of the value of the fish that are caught as possible stays in our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't make sense for for these this precious resource to be turned into a commodity that's uh, essentially like a private stock market for these big corporations. Um, and, and so those are some of the changes we're looking at here. Uh, your question was about overfishing. And I, I think the real, the real key here is having good science, um, understanding as well as we can uh, what's happening with these fish populations. We know that with climate change, um, the fish aren't necessarily going to be where they used to be. We're going to see different species. We're going to see fish in different areas. Yeah. And so we need a very adaptive approach. Uh, and we, most of all, we need to be investing in the fishery science so that we can understand as well as we can um, what these changes are and what the implications are uh, so that you know, fisheries management decisions can be based on that solid evidence. Um, what we don't want is we don't want fisheries management decisions to be based solely on politics, on who has the loudest voice and who's able to put the most pressure on the minister. That's not that's not a, a good sustainable situation. Yeah, when talking about uh, good science, like we've, peop- the scientists have learned that like lobster, they keep going north because as the water gets warmer, they keep migrating north, which hurts the lots of fishermen off the Bay of Fundy because there's not as much. Um, I did, while doing research, I learned that you are supportive of removing salmon farms from the ocean. Again, I, my town is reliant on cooked agriculture. Salmon farms are everywhere. Why are you supportive of removing them? Well, here on the West Coast, um, the salmon farms farm Atlantic salmon in the same waters that Pacific salmon migrate through. And there are a lot of concerns about uh, the spread of disease, um, about sea lice infestations, and the impact of these these, uh, salmon farms on wild populations. Mm -hmm. Um, Here in in the Northwest, uh, I live in the Skeena River watershed, which is Canada's second largest wild salmon watershed. And back in the mid 2000s, there were 
a, a consortium of, of Norwegian um, salmon farming companies that came in and proposed a, a, a number of salmon farms near the mouth of the Skeena River. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a huge pushback from the watershed. It was an issue that brought together commercial fishermen, First Nations, uh, anglers, uh, people up and down the watershed saying that, you know, we don't want to take the risk to to our wild stocks. And luckily, we were able to win a moratorium on salmon farming on the central and north coast of BC. Uh, on the south coast of British Columbia, um, they weren't as fortunate. And, and so they've had uh, dozens of salmon farms, some of them directly in the migration routes of, of wild stocks. And uh, many wild stocks in British Columbia are at risk conservation wise. And um, there's there's growing evidence that these salmon farms um, pose a real a real threat to those wild stocks because of the factors I mentioned, um, because of the risk of disease and and um, and uh, sea lice and other other challenges. So the federal government in the last election promised to get the farms out of the water and to not renew the leases. Um, they have been dragging their feet and frankly the the salmon farming industry has a very strong lobby and and has uh, fought them uh, both in the court of public opinion and in the courts Um, but just recently we did uh, hear from the minister that um, she has made a a final decision not to renew those leases and i think by and large that's that's going to be a positive for our coast and for our wild salmon at the same time we, we need to see the federal government uh, look out for those communities that have come to depend on salmon farming economically. There are communities on the coast where salmon farming is the biggest employer. And so to to move the goalposts and to pull these licenses um, and not consider the impact of that on the community, I think will be a real, you know, cause, cause could cause some real harm. Uh, we need the federal government to step up with a transition plan for communities and for First Nations that depend on these farms currently and make sure that there are other economic options that are being developed that uh, will allow families to continue to provide for themselves. Um, so it's not a it's not a simple situation. It's it's certainly complex in, in some areas. And there are people on both sides of the issue. Um, but my view is that you know, there are so many different threats to our wild salmon populations here on the West Coast. Uh, climate change uh, is certainly a big one. And in light of that, in light of um, the need to rebuild the full diversity and abundance of our wild salmon, uh, we need to ensure that that risks like those from salmon farming uh, aren't part of the picture, that wild fish have um, as many chances as they can to to migrate and, and spawn and uh, and hopefully grow their populations over time. I I have I do have my personal problems with the farm salmon industry, but then on the other hand, they employ a, most most of my family. But so it's a it's a hard situation. Do I do I agree with them? Do I disagree with them? I really don't know. Uh, yeah, these kinds of issues are are really tricky, especially when you know when they're embedded in our economies mm-hmm. and uh, people rely on them for their livelihood. It's it's not a it's not a simple one at all. I, I think the issues on the east coast are are probably a little bit different than on the west coast. Uh, I assume the 
the salmon you're farming are, are Atlantic salmon out there. And, and uh, I'm not familiar with, you know, what the uh, evidence shows when it comes to things like sea lice and, and disease, the spread of disease. Um, but, you know, ultimately, uh, when communities are concerned, when the people are concerned, um, we need a federal government that's responsive to that. One of my final questions is, I, I like to ask this question to every guest I have. What do you think about changing the electoral system away from first past the post? Uh, I'm a big advocate of moving to a proportional system. Okay. Um, you know, right now in Canada, we have a, an electoral system where about 20% of the eligible voters can determine uh, the government that has a government that has 100% of the power. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't seem like a fair system. And at the same time, we have so many voters across the country who are disenfranchised by our voting system, who feel like their vote doesn't count. Maybe they, maybe they live in a riding that has always voted conservative and where they just feel like the other parties don't stand a chance. And, mm -hmm. and so they don't cast their vote because they figure that the, the outcome is, um, you know, the outcome is, is kind of predetermined. Uh, that's a real shame because what we're, you know, I think ultimately the, one of the indicators of a strong electoral system is that people feel like their vote matters. They feel like their voice counts and they see in some way, they see a reflection of their political views in the um, democratic assembly, in, in, in the legislature or the parliament. Um, and, you know, right now we have, uh, you know, parties that are underrepresented based on their popular vote. Uh, ultimately, I think if we're really going to be a government by the people, then the makeup of parliament should reflect uh, the, the feelings and the votes of Canadians. Um, and so there, there are a lot of different factors to consider, but um, I, I tend to favor a, an electoral system that promotes collaboration uh, between parties and um, consensus building. And I, I think that those ideas are, are, you know, uniquely Canadian. We don't need to have a, a winner takes all system like the Americans do. Uh, I think we can we can do better than that. And there's certainly uh, countries around the world that have shown how a proportional system can be effective. Uh, one of the aspects of proportional systems is that you end up with more women in parliament. You end up with more indigenous people in parliament. You end up with uh, a parliament that um, reflects more closely the fabric of the country. And uh, in a democratic country, how, how can that be a bad thing? I, I think um, that would be a much better uh, scenario to be in. Uh, I have a couple things to add. Here in New Brunswick, we are still a, a very majority white province, but there are a growing non-white population in the legislature. The 49 people, 100% white. There's not any diversity with them. Yeah. And my second point, I, I live in a mine that has voted not conservative twice in recent memory, 93 and 2015. So I do have friends who are like, why should I vote? The party I, I support is has no shot at all of winning a riding. So it's, yes. that's why I'm a fan of oh, getting away from first past the post. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think a lot of people across Canada were 
um, were, first of all, excited when Justin Trudeau promised mm -hmm. that was. 2015 would be the last election under first-past-the-post, and then felt really betrayed when, when he went back on that promise. Um, and, you know, the, I, I've brought it up in the House of Commons, and the Liberals really don't have a, a solid reason why uh, they they betrayed, betrayed Canadians on that, that promise of electoral reform. Uh, essentially what they said is, is yes. that, well, there, there, there isn't a consensus among Canadians, but since when has there needed to be a consensus to, to make policy change? Um, that, that seems like a pretty artificial construct. Uh, the reality is, is that it is tough to make these changes, but we've seen countries like New Zealand that have successfully moved to a proportional system and uh you know they yeah use it in federal elections it seems to work just fine and and they have uh i i think as a result seen seen a lot of benefits um and it doesn't necessarily uh benefit one party or another i know lots of folks out there uh have ideas about um you know yeah. which parties would would benefit would stand to benefit from it but i i think ultimately mm -hmm. this is about the higher principle of ensuring that our parliament represents the people as as well as possible. And there are things we need to consider in that, things like geographic representation, which of course in Canada is very important, but ultimately in a, in a system where it's one person, one vote, and it's meant to be, um, you know, a parliament that reflects the fabric of our country, uh, we're a long ways off that right now. When you look at the, the electoral results and you look at who sits in our House of Commons. My final question for you is, what does the future hold for you? Do you plan on money for re-election whenever the next election may be? Yeah, this job, is a, it's a tremendous honor to represent the folks of Northwest British Columbia. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, it's a huge area. This riding is the size of Poland. It's the largest riding in British Columbia. And I think it's about the fifth or sixth largest in the country. I, actually, if I recall correctly, the fourth largest outside the territories. So there you go. Um, and yeah. yeah, it's just it's just such an incredible honor. I would I would uh, I would love to continue in this role. Of course, that's up to the people. And uh, I'm just going to continue working hard every day to to make sure their voices are are coming forward and being heard. Do you have anything you want to say to the people listening? Well, it's been a real pleasure being on your show, Logan, and uh, just a big hello to everyone out in New Brunswick. Um, it's not a, a province I've spent a lot of time in, so I look forward to visiting one of these days, and maybe when I do, we can we can sit down again and continue the conversation. That'd be, that'd be nice. Well, uh, Taylor, uh, thank you for taking time to, to do this interview with me. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It's, it's great to connect. Thanks for your questions, and... Best of luck with all your endeavors. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been The Manifesto. Today my guest was Taylor Bachrock, NDP MP for Skeena, Bulkley Valley. Thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in to The Manifesto podcast brought to you by the UNBSJ Politics Society. I'm your host, Logan Cook.